0: Hey everyone, how's it going? Uh, My name's Rafe and obviously, and uh, today I've got uh, Mark Ingram with me from Ingram Tribology. Uh, Today we're going to be talking everything about white edge cracking. So we'll have to talk about exactly what that is. We're probably going to call it a WEX or WC or whatever from now on. Um, But this is obviously uh, going to be centered a lot around wind turbines and wind turbine failures and things like that. So Mark's a bit of an expert in this specific area and so really excited to get his take um, on what we know about this failure mode uh, so far and and what's kind of led up to it. So, um, Mark, do you want to just maybe give us a bit of an intro um, before we get started? Um, you know, what's your role in all this?
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I suppose I, I, I joined the kind of WEC project about 2015, um, when it was still in this kind of infancy, really. Um, we worked with, at the time, we were working with... Um, the, you know, uh, the Argonne National Labs, uh, Cambridge Uni, Imperial College, Southampton Uni, so we had a lot of kind of information coming at us at, when I was at Afton, and then we kind of did a lot of work there, and then since then I've kind of moved and I've got my own little company here in South Wales where we, um, and we do mainly now is the kind of development work on the WEX as opposed to up the R&D, the, the research side, so we are um, like, developing, well, working with people to develop new kind of products in this kind of space. Yep. Okay,
0: awesome. So just to uh, make sure that everyone has the sort of same level of base knowledge, we're going to go right back to the start. So could you please sort of describe what exactly white-edge cracking is and maybe how it's different to some other but similar failure modes?
1: Yeah, of course. So it's a, it's a form of premature, on the most part, bearing failures in the hardened steel bearings. Um, it, it's a kind of subsurface transformation of the steel, which manifests itself as, as pits and uh, spalls and actual cracks on the surface of the bearing. The way it's a bit different from normal fatigue is it happens extremely quickly whereas in, in like a subsurface-initiated spore, like a normal crack and a normal spall on a bearing, you might expect it to happen after about 20 years in a wind turbine-type situation, and you'd get one spore on the surface. With white-etching cracks type failure, the complete subsurface has been changed, and you're going to form lots and lots of spores, lots of actual cracks around the, around the bearing. I kind of I was trying to think of a good analogy and when I came up with this bit of a funny one it's if you think of like a, a mole imagine like do you have like subterranean kind of moles in Australia <laughs> <So> imagine like <laughs> a mole.
0: <laughs> yeah we don't but do I've read one? wind in the willows
1: oh there you go so imagine the little kind of mole and he lives below the kind of field on your kind of farm and he sat down there for 20 years and normal fatigue he's kind of sat down at like the certain depth from the surface. And he wakes up after 20 years and he kind of goes towards the surface and pop and he's formed like the spore. Right, wex, imagine 200 of these moles or more all at about the same depth. They wake up after about one, two, three, four, five years and they, they've all had a coffee in the morning and they all start like digging frantically around forming these huge kind of networks and burrows everywhere. And a few of them are gonna go start going to the surface and pop, they form the spores. So we might only see one spore on the surface with a weck failure, but the whole subsurface is completely littered with these networks of cracks, you know, from, from that analogy. It's, it might look the same, but the, if the bearing is left to go even further, you're going to form more and more spores, and it happens extremely quickly. So that's the main, the main difference, is the extent of damage subsurface and the kind of guarantee of early failure.
0: So, so when you talked about, um, specifically about the time frame, you were talking about, you, you know, for a for a wind turbine bearing, typical bearing failures, you know, of the of the failure modes that we're maybe more, you know, familiar with, would happen on that sort of twenty year time horizon. Whereas this can happen as early as uh, one year from the beginning of operations. Is that right?
1: yeah the stats i did try the stats from the field like the few and far between but kind of one three kind of five years is about so we test to about three years normally so we we'd subject the bearing and we'd expect the wet failure to happen in that time frame it's, it's it can be as low as about one one percent of the l10 life of the bearing but you know we test about three four five years yeah but certainly the bearing is spec to go to the 20 years and it's failing well within that you know far too early
0: yeah okay that makes sense so when did this kind of failure you know show up in the industry and the reason i asked that is because when you read you know a history of wind turbine failures or anything like that not that there's like a a you know, a common textbook on this kind of stuff. But when you look into the history a little bit, uh, I think, you know, most of the information tends to be about micro-pitting failures. And uh, the way mm-hmm. I understand it, that, that was kind of affecting the industry quite early on. You know, if you refer back to the conversation we, we had with uh, Jim Carey from mobile, you know, he talked about sort of the genesis of that and the fact that um, the, let's say, uh, the old style uh wind turbine gearboxes were basically repurposed industrial gearboxes. So before they really got their own specific, you know, wind turbine gear design, um, you know, we had a whole bunch of micro pitting failures. So when did this white edge cracking start to show up? Is that, is it a recent phenomenon? Has it been masked by some other stuff? You know, why is it, why are we talking about it so much?
1: Yeah, I think it's like, like widespread acceptance that it exists and the kind of explosion of study into it. It's about 15, 20 years old now. Um, you know, you can probably find, people kind of say, oh, it existed decade, decades ago and they kind of show like one or two papers of it happening in like um, washing machine bearings is one, um, car alternators, that was a Japanese problem quite a while ago, rail tracks is another one. But generally that, those were kind of niche and kind of ignored. Um, so it's got kind of 15, 20 years, and it probably, you know, thinking about it probably coincided with the growth of the wind turbine industry and the popularity of, of the turbines. Uh, that's where it's come from. Where Although by touching crack failures probably exist in other places, mm-hmm. they're not so prevalent and they're not so expensive to fix. Whereas on the wind turbine side, it's said, you know, when you talk about wax, you go straight to wind turbines because it's, you know, it's what it's what the wind turbine engineers are most worried about. Well, it was what what they were most worried about. Yeah. In terms of the, was it mass by micro and I don't think they're kind of related so much. That in terms of the micro the failure, you can design that failure out essentially. You know, this these specifications you can use to to have the kind of the permissible film thickness there. So the the mm-hmm. gearbox manufacturers will and designers will use that to spec a specific oil film thickness and therefore the viscosity to to prevent the micropitting failures. And then you've got tests in place to subject the oil to, to, to the same kind of conditions and prove that they can stop micropitting if they go below the kind of safety level. And there's a big kind of safety buffer there. Wex... Probably, you know, I wasn't working on it back right at the start, but it probably caught quite a few people off guard because the bearings are operating within what they think is their limit, you know, and they should last for the 20 years. And they're getting all these crazy failures happening. Um, I don't think they were masked. I think it was just kind of they, they've also happened, if, if that makes sense, you know. Um, yeah,
0: I think when I, when I was saying uh, masked, I didn't mean necessarily from a from a technical sense and more you know, if everyone was consumed with micro-pitting failures, maybe they sort of went, weren't looking at the bearing failures, but um, it sounds like they're pretty sort of distinct, and even from a timeline standpoint, they seem to be pretty distinct. And I guess, like you said, yeah. um, you know, the, the failure of a bearing on a washing machine is uh, not that expensive an exercise compared to the failure of a, uh, a wind turbine. Yeah. So uh makes sense why it, it, it gains uh, so much prominence. So... If we could then go through maybe, um, you know, some of the original theories about white edge cracking, um, where, you know, initially when we started to, to see it turn up, what did everyone think it was the result of?
1: Um, kind of the, the theories we have now, generally what we've seen are the same of what we've seen in the original kind of literature. Uh, yep. One of the main kind of review papers, a guy called Martin Evans, he a lot of kind of his theories back then, and this is like the original, this, this is 2013, so it's not a long time ago. You know, I, I can't speak for the wind turbine operators, but certainly when it became more mainstream published, the same theories exist. We're talking about uh, hydrogen ingress to the steel, we're talking about electrical currents. We're talking about transient operation of the wind turbines. You know, they're seeing forces and slips in the bearings and the high pressures. Uh, stray currents is a big one. Uh, the additive uh, systems probably do contribute in some ways. And uh, the water content of the, the oil as well. And those four or five, it, it's, it's still the main topics of discussion now. Um, people are kind of tending... I, you know, I caught up before this interview, obviously I caught up with all the recent, most recent literature. It's the same kind of story now, really. It's, it's people are still tending towards the kind of hydrogen ingress into the steel. And we're talking tiny concentrations, like one ppm can go into the steel. Where that comes from, you know, there's one paper saying it's, it's definitely coming from the water. Some of the people are saying it's coming from the kind of lubricant. It's probably coming from a bit of both. And, you know, it's going into the steel um, it's embrittling that steel, transforming the, the grain structure, and it allows these cracks to form. And once these cracks start, it, there's no stop, and then They're going to reach the surface. You're going to form the spore. Electrical currents definitely accelerate them as well. You, you know, passing an electric current through the bearing has been shown, even with the bearing running really happily. You know, if you're running a bearing well within its design limit, no transient forces, you know, just running at 1,000 RPM with a force, you pass an electric current through it and you you can form wax And people kind of move the polarity around and the current and things like that and all kinds of wacky stuff and the effects, but you can form wax like that. Um, with the additive systems, you we kind of know uh, now what additive systems form it. Um, it's not quite as simple as some people kind of make out. You, you know, like I can definitely form – I can definitely – and I with all the bad it probably won't form Wax as well. You, you know, th- it's not quite as that one forms Wax, that you, you know, it's not quite as simple as that. Um quite, quite interestingly, like when we started this work, is forming Wax in the lab was a priority back then. And it's actually quite difficult in the early days, it was because right. uh, we didn't know, we didn't know how to do it. You, you know, we, we were running tests all over the place I think we had at one point we had three test instruments running full time on this project and we had two weekly meetings and we called it the, the kind of WEC, um, I I not know, collaboration or something and it was us and it was Argon National Labs and it was uh, Sheffield and I think Imperial joined in and PCS instruments and all kinds of fun people um and yeah it was week after week of no wex no wex no wex no wex you know it it but eventually you, you kind of find something that forms it and you're kind of away. So although we kind of know now how to form them, back in 2015, we certainly couldn't, you, you, know, you know, and, like, I'm sure a lot of people are in the same kind of situation, and if they say they, they're easy to form, they're not, you know. <laughs> they're just not. It, once you kind of get the secret source and you kind of understand what's kind of going on, you can kind of do it, but, but anyway, the drivers... Yeah, there's chemical, there's hydrogen, there's water probably, there's electrical, there's engines operation of the wind turbines. Um yeah, those those are the kind of main ones really. And they're the still the main ones we talk about now.
0: Just to, maybe just to pick up on because it might not be obvious to the audience or and or or to me for that matter. Um, when we said you said uh there are two sort of leading uh let's say locations that the hydrogen could have come from primarily it's either coming from water or it's coming from the lubricant so presumably water h2o um what's what's breaking the water molecule and allowing the hydrogen to migrate into the steel
1: yeah so in terms of the physics of it you actually need quite a high energy to to break the water molecule down to, to perform the di- the monatomic hydrogen. But in people think this is you know because it's so hard to measure. So this is just yeah. what we think might happen. The kind of iron oxide, the iron that is seen on the surface during rubbing. So, first of all, the you know, if you just put like a bearing in water, I, you know, it's probably not gonna work do, do, do you mean? But if you've got like the high transient conditions where you have high loads high spin you're going to have kind of high wear events on your bearing what that probably does is kind of clears away the tribofilm the oxide layer you're forming kind of iron oxide particles they may act as some kind of catalyst and reducing that energy down so the the water can break down at a lot lower energy and you because you have the heat um you have the kind of heat in the kind of flash points of of the bearing which may be helping as well Mm -hmm. so that's that's the theory again we're talking such low concentrations it's hard to measure although you know there are some people who are quite clever and can kind of measure hydrogen ingress from different things not a lot of it some of it's not published but people can certainly measure it in different ways um so that is certainly seems to be one of the leading where well, the leading things we can measure in the lab is this hydrogen coming down so that it can come from the water and also from the lubricant. The same kind of system, really, where the nascent steel, very reactive steel surface due to these transient events can degrade the lubricant, you know, the basols or the additives. You remember, the basol is, you know, 99% of it. So, you know, the basol probably has some you know, something's going to break down. It's going to be that. And, yeah, the, those, that hydrogen molecules then can, we think, can, can travel, through the, travel through the steel. <laughs>
0: Does that yeah. mean that? That's really interesting. So I guess, uh, you know, sort of to back up a little bit, it's almost yeah. like, uh, you know, we have this widespread problem in the industry, and we're trying to replicate that in the lab but that's proving to actually be a reasonably difficult exercise. <laughs> and yeah. finding that there are is you know potentially a confluence of many factors that are contributing to this phenomenon. And, and like you said, if if it's hydrogen getting into the steel, then you have to have some kind of energy mechanism for that to, to do so. And I guess all mm. the things that you've already named, right? So you know, where do you get the hydrogen? Well, it's probably from water or the base oil. Um, you need a lot of energy to break you know the hydrogen away from whatever molecule it's attached to i guess part of that energy could come from electric currents right which you already described as well so it's it's a whole bunch of stuff that is kind of going into it at the same time so um uh you know if you're able to talk about it are you able to talk about some of the more specific research that you and and your group have have done and um kind of yeah, some of the t- techniques yeah. that you've used to to study white edge cracking
1: yeah I suppose like I could kind of take you through the story but you most of it's it's all published now but a lot of it's published is um you know we kind of realized early on well first of all I kind of tell you how it kind of started and why we started taking it so seriously was I, I don't know like a, a few people back then the the WEC kind of there'd be one of two WEC talks in the conferences and you kind of go oh it's just pitting and you kind of ignored it a bit and but then one of the kind of things we, we'd, we'd go along to the and see the OEMs in generally in Germany or around around that area the Winterbun OEMs and you know we'd go in and say we've got this new oil it's brilliant at like low temperature high temperature whatever and they'd be like right sit down shut up tell us about WECs <laughs> <laughs> you know was something we thought quite fringe we realized quite quickly was the real thing we should be investigating um obviously, obviously we weren't the only ones but so there was this kind of whole you, you know pro, a huge project and a huge effort then to like really understand them we also realized that we we couldn't kind of like kind of pussyfoot I don't know how to describe We couldn't like just go on oh, friction's low for this oil or the wear's low you need you need a wet test you need those that form wax oils that don't form wax You need some kind of way of proving the technology forms the wax and doesn't form the wax in the, in the lab which didn't exist yeah you know so we couldn't do much research without the test so that was the first thing and and back then there was quite a few things going on we were using the FAG FE8 rig. Um, there was kind of transient type when we're trying to generate transients. You know, you, you know, in an absolute company, you're limited to the kind of smaller rigs. Where I guess the bearing manufacturers and the OEMs they have bigger kind of bearing rigs they can use with more things they could do, and we're more limited to the lab scale testing for the most part. Um, so that was our focus at the beginning was to develop the test, and that was, like I said, it was by no means easy. Um, just doing that was was generating them, generating the wax repeatedly. It's kind of a different way around, you know, you, you, we're formulating oils to cause a failure. Do, 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 do you mean like so most of the time you, you've you got a test and you're formulating the oils to stop the failure. So now you kind of have to turn around and you're trying to form a failure and just that failure. You don't micro-pitting, you don't nor pitting you don't highway, you don't want anything else. You just want wax to form and that's it. And hopefully quite quick and repeatedly. So we did that. But like I said, it took a while. And, you know, we did loads of things. And I, I think a, a few people kind of copied or did similar stuff to us then, that's been published since, where they, they, they looked at the kind of bad reference oils. So we know of one particular oil that's quite good, at forming wax is it, it's not used in wind turbines it's used in transmissions but we know that, that particular oil is quite good at forming wax in lab testing again back then we didn't really know like it, it was kind of um and so we we took that oil apart we understood exactly all the additives in it and we tried to make our own type of bad oil and then that's kind of was the start of the research really where we were trying these additives kind of up and down, in and out, you know, more of this additive, more of that additive, more of the zinc, more of the calciums, more of the sodiums, more of the, you know, we're just trying loads of different things. Um, so yeah, we, we tried all the chemistry, lots of interesting chemistry going on. And a lot of that's kind of published, uh, Ben Gould published a lot of that, Alex Richardson. Um, I think there's three or four papers on, on that work if people are interested. Um, Right, the kind of elephant in the room of that is that's not a wind turbine lubricant. You know, so you go back to the wind turbine OEMs and go, we've got this test now, we can show wax in and out, whatever. And they're like, right, what about like the wind turbine, the ISO 320, kind of the high viscosity grade oils? You know, where, where, is that? where are those? You know, like, that's what we want to know about. We want to test those. That's another huge step in the in the development because you've got these kind of low viscosity bad oils that form wax in the lab and now you have to move to these really viscous oils which are completely different kind of chemistry makeup and probably don't form wax in the lab in uh, and you know in in our testing yeah and we have to kind of get good good and bad reference oils there and essentially start again so that was another kind of test, another kind of leap upwards um and then yeah so that was similar kind of we were we had like bad reference oils which where there was visor kind of 320 grades and we had the good good ones and we can show the tests then become a lot longer so we went from kind of 20 hour tests to how long would they be i can't remember but a lot longer we're talking like week or two weeks or to, to prove out kind of a three, five year uh, cycle in the field, I think we'd go to about two or three months of testing. So obviously it slows it all down, the development cycle, but it had to be done, you know, so we'd go to the wind turbine now and go, right, this oil forms an ISO 320, this one, has, you know, to use the data to back it up and we had kind of three or four rigs devoted to this project at the time. Yes, yeah, so that was kind of, yeah, that's kind of how that kind of research took off. And obviously there's a lot of kind of pro- propriety stuff going on and that was kind of all in-house, but we had, um, you know, we had a lot of people working on it. It was, like I said, it's the Bengals in Argonne National Lab we worked with, is Alex Richardson in Southampton, Kuba, uh, uh, um. Julie Torreydell, who was in Cambridge at the time, and then we took him into Afton and cost us an Imperial College. So it's like a lot of people mm. and a lot of information coming in quickly, you, you know, to like get there.
0: Yeah. Um, it's a huge, uh, huge undertaking, but also for an equally huge problem, too, right? Yeah, uh, a, a huge and yeah. new problem, I guess, is, is probably the key, yeah. um, key thing there. So, uh- You know, when the dust settles, and you guys have done all this, all this research and all these projects and all that kind of stuff, is there is there a consensus on on what we think causes WEX?
1: Yeah, I think I think it's emerging. I think it's I think it's coming. I'm reading the recent papers and there's an interview with Jacob recently, which was really good. There was um, I think we're still we're still similar to the original martin paper if i'm honest back to 2013 it's it's the same drivers it's probably multimodal there's probably a few ways to form them well we've shown you can form them in, in lots of different ways hydrogen is my favorite personally i think that's probably up there with one of the most favorite as well some high some kind of hydrogen ingress to the in, into the steel um, changing it because it all kind of works quite nicely and lots of people can show that in different ways and you can measure the hydrogen in the steel and we know hydrogen brittle steel and it kind of all kind of fits together quite nicely yeah. that that one the electrical current one is is a bit harder to kind of explain away but it certainly can uh, happen the the transient effects it seems harder to form wex with just transients you you know like you need some kind of acceleration as well as that so i think the transient kind of thing is important it's also a lot i probably preface it with that it's a lot harder to do those kind of transient events on a good scale in the lab yeah you know trying to simulate what the bit what the bear in in a wind turbine in the lab is a lot harder so there's a lot less work there it doesn't mean you know i think at the moment it's less important but it, it may emerge as being the most important it's just that there's less research in that space because it's a lot lot harder because you have to build all these crazy big rigs with you know really really strong motors and high loading systems and that type of thing yeah so we've got yeah to summarize it's like hydrogen ingress into the steel we've got uh, electrical currents uh, some kind of transients um yeah and then we're down to the kind of the chemical effects, but the the chemical, transients, electrical currents, they all be leading into the hydrogen as well. You know, it may all kind of be the first step. And then the it's the hydrogen that kind of finishes the bearing off, as it were. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and just at the moment, I guess with all the work that um you know the industry has been doing to understand this failure mode and and maybe take actions to, to prevent its onset and things like that, right? Are we at a stage where we, you know, are, are white edge cracking failures reducing in the field? And, um, you know, let, let's say, for example, you know, we talked about it before as being a failure mode, which can onset within, you know, let's say one to two to three years. Is everything that we're doing now an exercise in uh, forestalling that that failure, like, are we now going to push that failure out to nine or ten years, or are we actually curing it?
1: Yeah, I think from, from the conversations I've heard in this yeah. space, it's going down, and it's going down rapidly. People are still, probably like your micro-pitting kind of thoughts, is people are, are, are better aware of it now, know how to engineer it out, and know so the technology as well we see coming through our lab. That can literally stop it dead. It's quite amazing, mm. um, and that would be, you know, I don't want to overset the mark, and you know, there'd be people out there working in the field and know what's going on a lot better than I do. I hear it's getting a lot better. I see the technology moving through. A lot of the development work we're doing now is on that side, and I know it must be getting to the field eventually. I think it, it will be it will be reducing. Yeah, um, it seems to have that kind of. Another way to look at it is that kind of first generation of people who are working on WEX, and I was probably a bit late to the game. But the kind of we're probably I I I'd say the number of researchers is maybe reducing a bit now, going off what I see, you know, in conferences and things, and who's working on on what. That WEX is is less of it's it's getting very specific in that space where people are. You know, not as field-focused, more fundamental university kind of work, and the kind of the companies have gone off on the development projects. Now they know enough to to help the field, and I think I think that's what's going on. You know, and everyone's developing new new products, and yeah, I think I think it should be improving. Yeah. In terms of this was your direct question: Is it going to stop? But well, you know, it should it, hopefully, I, you, you know, you the kind of the the, the things that might catch us out would be those transient events that you probably can't, you know, you can't, you know, the, the wind is hitting those gases yeah, yeah. going on, on off the grid, and there's a kind of emergency of stops where you get the kind of high peak pressures on things. You're not going to remove that from the bearing. so You're always going to, the bearing, probably is still going to be overloaded. It's going to see sliding events.
0: You also can't so that, really replicate that in a lab, right?
1: Yeah, we can't replicate that in the lab. Well, I'm not aware of easy ways to do it, but I'm yeah. sure the kind of bearing can do to, to some extent there and some of the oems But um, yeah, I personally, yeah, I think it, from what I hear and what I see, I think it should be getting better.
0: That's that's really interesting. Um, so maybe just as we as we start to wrap up here, you know, some maybe some practical pointers for um, people in the field. So if you're a, let's say, you're an operator of a wind farm, um, you know, wh- what steps can you be taking to uh, try and prevent, you know, wex at, at your site um, if there's yeah, anything yeah. you can, if there's any interventions you can take and maybe uh, maybe a more relevant question would be what are the signs that you need to look for that wex is occurring?
1: Hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I, like, answer that question i don't want to kind of overstep the marker really, but like i can approach it from the way i understand deep in this kind of research kind of role is if i wanted to do the opposite and i wanted to form wax in your wind turbine i'll tell you how to do that and then nope. you know the opposite hopefully is true. Do the opposite. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so, so you know, if I wanted to form wax in your winter and I'd use like a, this specific transmission oil or something like it with lots of uh, zinc and calcium sulfonates and, and other things in there, um, we'd, we'd stick a load of water in there. I'd apply like a current across the gearbox, like it's kind of currently going through the bearing and I put it in the gustiest, craziest position I could with loads of, and I'd, I don't know, put it next to a, a really faulty substation <laughs> so the, the wind turbine goes on and off the grid like 10 times a day Yeah, and that was my best way of forming WEX very quickly in the wind turbine barriers <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. so then the opposite side then is, right so if you use the most modern technology you can in terms of the in terms of wind turbine lubricants you can because they are they have been developed massively over the last, certainly the last kind of five, 10 years. And you know, they, they they themselves won't accelerate WEX. Either they won't yeah. be the cause. The, the well, they've also, cause
0: they've also been developed in a time period where we knew something about WEX, too, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, and they've been tested with the tests we have to mitigate for it as much as possible. Yeah. So, so that will exist. On the bearing side, I know there's, there's some really interesting bearing technology as well with different companies and surface treatments and things. So there'd be something in that space, I'm sure that if, if they recommend using a certain type of bearing on the high-speed shafts or whatever, that would you know definitely go down that route, listen to the kind of field engineers there. Um, yeah, water content in the oil probably is, is an issue. Um, and if you can, you know, just monitor for that, 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 that would probably be something I'd look at. And then you're back to the transients end, which I'm guessing is something you can't really control. Mm. But if you can kind of just try and keep that wind turbine running at like a nice, nice steady state of conditions, as much as within your control, I don't really know much about it, but that would be, if, you know, if it was if the wind turbine was operating perfectly and the wind was always like the same speed and it was always connected to the grid and the grid was always operating at 50 hertz or whatever it is and nothing changed, it should be fine. But, you know, I don't, you know, how control you have over that is another matter. (laughs) But yeah, that's, that's kind of my insight that my insight to that.
0: Yeah. Great. Hey, uh, um, Mark, you know, thanks so much for your insight today. Uh, you know, it's really, uh, you know first of all I, I got a lot of value out of um, just understanding why it's cracking a little bit more but it's also nice to hear about the effort and um, the collaboration that goes into solving some of these really big issues right like it's uh, it wasn't just you guys it was a kind of a, a broad team that came together to really understand the failure like you said manufacture the failure in the lab so that now all these lubricant companies and bearing companies can can now start to design solutions for it too. Like, I just think that that's awesome. And uh, I guess from the lubricant side, because this is a lubrication focused uh, podcast, um, I guess the sort of the the main takeaways are use a modern wind turbine oil and keep your oil dry. Uh, That's kind of like, you know, Really, the 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 two big takeaways, Um, but but understanding the the story behind it, I think is is really valuable. So, hey, really appreciate your time. Uh, Thanks for coming on, and uh, I have to get you back for a few few other questions. All
1: right, cheers, Ray. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you.